I'm marketing executive and inside story panelist Brian Tierney, and you're listening to the True Philadelphia Podcast with Matt O'Donnell. Hello everyone, Brian Tierney is a longtime panelist on 6ABC's Inside Story program. Most know him as one of the top marketing and advertising executives Philadelphia has ever seen. From humble beginnings in Delaware County to selling his first public relations company when he was still in his 20s, to working with Fortune 500 CEOs, presidents and popes, Brian has a lot of stories to tell and a lot of advice to share. Early on, it seemed like Brian was teeing up a career in politics elected politics until he realized he loved the behind the scenes strategizing even more. We started our conversation there. Brian Tierney, great to have you on the Zoom chat on the True Philadelphia podcast. I miss all you guys on Inside Story. It's it's really just not the same having the discussions that we'd have every week. Yeah, it is. It's uh it, there's something about that interaction and walking into the station and then you take certain things for granted until they're gone. And then you kind of are like, God, I miss, you know, walking down that hallway and seeing the guard at the front door and seeing Matt and being on the set and, you know, all the different things around the building and the people that say hi and all the rest of it too. I've been doing that show since 1988. It's amazing when I think about it. You're a vet, man. You go back to the days of Irv Homer. Irv Homer, Chuck Stone, yeah, uh, uh, Irv, Chuck, and Carol Saline, who was with Philadelphia Magazine at the time. And it's a great example, too, about one of the things I tell people is, young people is, you know, give it a shot. So uh, the new show was starting. I got a call. Do you know anybody? We're looking for a Republican businessy type person. So I recommended somebody. I won't mention their name. They were very prominent. Got a call a month later. You know, that didn't, that was, he was good. Do you have any other ideas? I recommended a second person. A couple months later, you know, we're still getting up in the season, but, you know, any other thoughts? So I said, uh, uh, how about me? <laughs> and he said, have you ever done TV? And I had actually been on uh, Happy the Clown one time on Channel 6. So I, I had a previous when I was six or seven years old. Um, <laughs> so I, I had some experience at the station. No, so I said uh, a few times, uh, which was accurate. Anyway, uh, well, where are you now? I'm actually driving down the school school right near La Colina Restaurant. Well, can you come over? Sure. And I came over, tested. And uh, 30, you know, two years later, here we are. That reminds me of George H.W. Bush when he was looking for a vice president candidate and asked Dick Cheney to head the committee to look for one. And Dick Cheney said, ah, I found one. It's me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it was funny. That, that same sense of uh, when I was in first grade, I ran for uh, class president. And I came home and my mom said, how'd it go? And I said, I didn't win, you know so-and-so won and she said we're talking and then she said well who did you vote for and i said i i well i felt funny voting for myself i voted for michael she's like brian if you don't vote for yourself why would somebody else vote for you and that was one of those moments of at age six of like an epiphany of like yeah you're right that's you know why not me you know so that's began that process well you know i was going to start this somewhat differently but since you mentioned that let me start with this so you're from upper derby you're a local guy through and through and you unsuccessfully ran for office in Springfield Township, Delaware County, at the age of 18. You majored in political science at the University of Pennsylvania. You clearly were on this track of becoming a public servant, and it didn't end up that way. Why not? 
So I was always interested in politics and, and, and things like this. Grew up again, in, by then we had moved to Springfield. I got a flyer saying they're looking, the Democratic Party was looking for people to run for township commissioner. It was all Republican town. I was a senior in high school, not yet 18, but would eight, be 18 by the election day. So I thought, what a great way to learn. So I filed my papers and I uh, got a third of the vote. The guy who beat me went on to beat the incumbent Republican. Um, uh, Bernie Stein, his name was. And, uh, uh, and in true Delaware County fashion, they were able to flip him to Republican down the road. <laughs> so anyway, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but I really enjoyed it. And I just enjoyed the, and I had volunteered in various campaigns. So when I went to college, I wasn't active in student government or anything immediately. I was later on. And uh, I inquired, I said, you, you know, the college Republicans, you've got Gerald Ford running for reelection. You know, what are you guys? And they weren't going to endorse him. They were too hardcore. So I invented Penn Students for Ford. And two weeks later, I was introducing President Ford on the University of Pennsylvania campus. And again, that sense of give it a shot. You, it could work out, you know, kind of a thing. So when I got out of college, was accepted at Villanova in Pittsburgh. Knew if I became a lawyer, I'd be a lawyer all my life. I am now a lawyer. I went at night school at night, wanted to keep my parents happy. But I uh, went down to Washington and looked for a job and looked for a job and looked for a job. I had a Democratic resume and a Republican resume because of my backgrounds. And uh, my father finally said, you know, Villanova starts in a week. And if you don't have a job, you got to go to law school. And miraculously, I got through serendipity, a job working at the Republican National Committee in something called the Local Elections Division. So it's 1979, Carter's president, the party has been trumped, we've lost all kinds of state houses, and a guy named Bill Brock, who was the chairman, said, let's hire young people, train them to go out. So I'm out in Livonia, Michigan, Northeast Philly, and you're dealing with people who are running for office, lots of times trying to reach out to get uh, different types of, you know, more women, more minorities, et cetera, to run for his Republicans to open it up. And, you know, creating strategy. So, and it really goes to what I do now too, because first it's, you know, people agonize, should my bumper strip be red or blue? And we'd kind of say our research shows blue or next time we'd say research is red, just to get them off of that into thinking about. Beyond that though, why would somebody vote for you? What is it that's important that you need to say? What are the weaknesses of the other per? And it's really about marketing. And um, so did that, really enjoyed it. Um, Lived in Atlanta for a while, worked for a guy who went on to be a U.S. Senator, Paul Coverdale, great guy. Went back to Washington, um, ran all the campaign schools for the Republican National Committee while I was in law school at night. A friend said, uh, you know, I said, I'm dying to get back to Philadelphia. What's in the administration in the Philadelphia area? Anything? Because, you know, that's in the end where I'm going to practice law. And he said, there's a town called Ballasinewide. I said, I'll take it. So it was to be the head of communications for the U.S. Small Business Administration, one of 1,500 Reagan appointees throughout the entire government over in uh, one Bala Plaza. So uh, and I worked for a guy named Paul Turpeluk, uh, Peter Turpeluk, who was a great guy. And uh, it was just fun. It was the first time I ever got involved with that part of it, dealing with media kind of things. And um, had a certain amount of successes in it and by looking at things differently and then uh, started my own little agency with our babysitter from Cabrini College. Tried to get a job at an, the very famous agency called Lewis Gilman and Kynette in 1984. was turned down. You're too political. Two years later, I had two employees, but I had met the CEO of the holding company and he's, you know, you're a pretty sharp young guy. So the place that I couldn't get a job at at 27 hired me, bought my little company, and I came in as CEO at 29 um, in the Boris building overlooking uh, Independence Hall. So You've done well. You've done well despite never becoming a township supervisor, mayor, governor. You're like the Philadelphia ad man, really. Um, 
I mean, you, you are a master when it comes to marketing and advertising. You, your hands have been in so many different areas, not only around here, but all across the country and the world. Uh, three advertising companies. You've advised the biggest heads of corporations, a president of the United States. So I figured I would keep it simple by just simply asking you, how do you successfully market something? First, what you do is you do homework. You know, you really do it. You, you, so you do homework where, you know, and things like focus groups and understanding honestly where what we're marketing is, its challenges, its strengths, the emotional connections it has, the actual physical challenges it may have as a product or a service. Look at the competitive landscape and looking for opportunities. And part of that is doing research. And sometimes it's really important to not just immediately follow your gut and you have to advise clients, you know, that is some, those are some great ideas but let's do some homework around it. And then finding some unique way to position what it is you're trying to do or say in a way that really cuts through. You know, um, so in, in a way that, you know, isn't just sounds good to the boardroom, but really is gonna have, you know, an impact, if, if you will. Um, and, uh, you know, so for instance, you know, when we created the James Earl Jones campaign for Bell Atlantic back in the 90s, and that was an example of, of that, where, you know, having this person going in in real times, talking to real people, it gave us, you know, and a w wonderful connection that people, he was the constant and always putting him in new environments too. So that a small business could relate to was one thing. Um, understanding, I mean, now we have clients like, uh, we're really blessed to have clients, everybody from Independence Blue Cross, who has who now grown and is in 27, 28 states in different parts of it. Um, Health Caritas, and we have a lot of higher edge clients too, Villanova and University of Chicago and Widener, done some work with LaSalle and St. Joe's. So how do they distinguish themselves? Not in a way that, again, feels good immediately, but let's get precise. If you're on the other side of it, what would drive a decision? And then how do you say it in a way that's different and going to be impactful too as well? So maybe it's television. Maybe it's doing 15 second spots, which are also gonna be followed up by you know, digital, all those sorts of kinds of things. But the key part of it is thinking creatively. Research-based, but, but a creative idea that really breaks through. When we would present things, I would tell people, we're gonna present you ideas. If when we present you, you immediately love it, it's probably because it reminds you in a way of something you've seen before, and it probably won't be effective. Hmm. If you see something though that you hate, I'm not saying you have to hate it, but if you see something that you, you kind of, it's really interesting. You like, that's probably a, more, a better bucket for us to explore because sometimes people will say, oh, I love that, but it's too cluttered a space and they're saying thing that's not different enough. You know, when you think about it, what is it that they're, why are they going to vote for you? And campaigns are great experiences because 50% plus one is victory and you can't move election day, you know? Uh, whereas other, hopefully you can't move election day, we'll say this year, but anyway, um, is that, but that sense of, you know, it, you know, winning and losing is really clear cut. So I have, I've been blessed. I've been able to track a lot of people who some have come out of politics, you know, Arlen Specter's former chief of staff, press secretaries to U.S. senators, press secretaries to major unions, and also people though who have won, come from the corporate world, New York agencies. And the secret to our success is really simple. And I, I make it clear at the end, Matt, is just, I'm looking for really smart people who work really hard because I just don't know any other way to do it mm. and who have empathy for each other and empathy for our clients because the biggest CEO in the world, when he gets off or she gets off the stage is still worried about how did I do? Was that okay? Will this work? 
Did I sound okay? You know, all those things, they're normal people. And, you know, to have that sense of empathy, not just with the CEO, but with everybody in an organization is, is critical. Um, and that's been the secret to, you know, building three agencies that I've been able to sell to publicly traded companies and enjoying what I'm doing now as well. Just kind of looking at things a little differently. Let me sh shift gears a little bit. You took part in the planning for the 2015 papal visit in Philadelphia. And in my mind, I kind of feel like that was the most recent peak when it comes to Philadelphia's reputation, viability, and overall positiveness amongst its citizens. It was just a great week. It, it, I left with a great feeling for the city. And here we are in a pandemic. Cities like Philadelphia are really super struggling right now. It just doesn't work with social distancing and being in an urban environment. Businesses are closing. People are out of work. We don't know if the, the kids are going back to school. The violent crime is really, truly frightening to me. Where do you see Philadelphia right now and where is it going in the near future? So a couple different perspectives of it is, you know, working in Philadelphia in the 80s, for those of us who were here and remember that, um, and seeing downtown, um, you could almost see tumbleweeds going, brushing down, down Broad Street. I mean, that's how shut down things were. There were like two restaurants, you know, there's Arthur's Steakhouse and then there was, you know, one other run and that was it. And then you had, because timing one part of it and the incredible leadership of Mayor Randell, who gets elected and the first day is scrubbing the floors in the bathrooms at City Hall. If you remember that picture, remember that, yeah. so powerful. But yet always involved in connecting things. So you saw how one successful uh, leader can take an, 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 an organization up to a higher orbit that we benefit from years in, in, in afterwards kind of thing and the possibility. So I, I start with that saying, I've seen it really bad and I've seen it come back. And there is something about the Philadelphia grit part of this thing too as well, which I think, you know, there's a certain sense of we'll figure it out. Um, so I, I feel good about that. I feel my heart breaks, you know, my father had a glass shop in Upper Darby. He wouldn't have probably been an essential worker for many months, right? And nobody's getting cars repaired because they're not driving. My mom was a waitress at the Bellevue. So before she passed, she was able to see Tierney on the front of the Bellevue where our offices were, which was a wonderful thing for me to be able to share with her. But she would, we'd have no income coming into the house. And it just breaks my heart to think about those kinds of, you know, the situations where as hardworking as people are, they can feel a certain sense of failure and just, and then add to it, you know, you know, just the, the confluence of so many different things going on right now at one time. So on the other hand, maybe it's just me, but I do feel like we'll get through this. America will get through this by coming together. I, you know, one of the things that just, I, I haven't understood is why the president would allow himself to be against the pandemic rather than if it was a snow blizzard coming in six feet of snow he wouldn't say there's not gonna be any snow he'd say there's a good chance of snow we've got a great economy whatever the snow is we're going to fix it and for some reason he felt like he had to you know and now he's trying to sounds like he's pivoting back but i i like optimistic leaders who can get rally people together i do think we need some voices now about um you know not to uh, in any way you know stop the conversations about equity and things like this, but we have to also have some conversations about, okay, therefore, how do we come together as a country? Um, I think of, you know, when Reagan got the nomination, if you worked at the Republican National Committee, you weren't really a Reagan person. You were a George H.W. Bush person. You were a Tom Ridge type person at the RNC. And there was this kind of crazy conservative, but he was smart enough to talk about that shining city on the hill. He's smart enough to pick Jim Baker, to pick Bush as his vice president, who opposed him, 
and then get his chief of staff to be his chief of staff. I mean, talk about emotional intelligence and rallying people together uh, and having cigars with Tip O'Neill and late at night, who was on you know, the Speaker of the House as a Democrat. We're losing that sense of civility in the country, which worries me a lot. But people like us have to speak up and remind people about it and, and remind people that we're gonna get to the other side of this thing. I think when you talk to doctors, we represent Penn Medicine, um, we talk to doctors, you know, there's optimism about some of the trials that are going on. There's not a sense this is gonna be done in three months though, you know, but that, you know, that sometime after the first of the year, we're gonna to start to see some return to normalcy. And this technology, without this technology, can you imagine what would be going on like if this was happening 20 years ago? Nothing. <laughs> it, would, it would be horrible, yeah. So, um, you know, maybe it's just me. It, it's just, I have a certain sense of, on the one hand, you know, uh, concerned and on the other hand figuring you know what heck we'll figure it out and um, but again only if we as and our leaders kind of call to our, our our better spirits our our sense of you know what has made the country great in the past and let's kind of remember that and things like freedom of speech and things like this they, these are all kinds of the right to protest these are critical critical things that you can't do in China and we should be doing them and be really proud of them Around the same time I conducted this interview, a group of people dressed up to look like doctors, many of whom with suspect credentials, to hold a news conference that was streamed on Facebook Live. Tens of millions of people watched it. The speakers claimed there was already a cure for the coronavirus, that mask wearing doesn't work, that schools should reopen. One of the main speakers is a Texas pediatrician who has previously warned people about alien DNA and having sex with witches and demons in your dreams. Not making it up. Source-based, fact-checked, honest journalism is under attack now more than ever. That concerns Brian Tierney, but he also sees solutions. The one industry that I'm very concerned about is the one I'm in, and, and you've had immense involvement in as well, is the journalism industry. You are the former owner of the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer, Daily News, Philly.com, which is now Inquirer.com. There's a massive disruption that continues with advertising and journalism. Newspapers are closing. Some large cities in America have no newspapers or just a newspaper that prints out AP wires. There's really no local involvement. Given how starved people are, though, Ryan, for information right now, how does journalism figure, this, figure its way out of this? Well, a couple different things. One thing is one of my investors was Jerry Lanfest, who, you know, because he was uh, after the bankruptcy and when he put together the Lanfest Institute and the foundation, and they've raised tens of millions of dollars for an endowment, which they're continuing to build. So that's one model. You see another model. You know what? Let's step back for a second. Um, I, I don't want to sound cavalier about this, though, too. But, you know, a, a good-sized newsroom in a lot of good-sized towns would be 200 journalists. Um, okay, so let's just call that. Back in the day, sure, yeah. Uh, and the Inquirer now has about 180 to 220, depending upon how you look at it. We, when I left, there were 400, when you think about it. So um, a average cost salary, I'm doing back in the end, $100,000, $110,000. So for about 20 or 30, $40 million a year, not a small amount of money, though, you could have a powerful newsroom. You know, so you need an endowment then. So, I mean, there's a lot of wealthy folks that we need to reach out to in institutions and help them get to literally if you want to preserve something really important for generations to come 
It's that we don't have freedoms if we don't have journalists. If we don't have guys like you digging in and finding out who the bad guys are, this country will be in a really bad spot. Are you talking about eliminating the, the profit-driven part of the industry then? Or No, I, th I think it has to have both. I think you have to have the, the for-profit. People have to be hustling, trying to sell ads, creatively coming up ideas. You have, I mean, one of the challenges now, it's really interesting, is um, even Facebook's advertising is down. Audiences are huge for every everybody. People are watching. It's just businesses aren't strong enough now to buy ads so that they, you know, in certain categories like travel and tourism. So, um, you know, and, and there's so many options. When we got involved with Philly.com, we were 16 million page views a month. We hired a bright young guy from McKinsey. He drove it to 97 million page views a month. Our goal was to get to 30. What had happened though, this thing called Facebook started in 2006. Have you heard about the Facebook? Yeah, but anyway, around the same time we bought the paper. So, but because they could tag you and wherever you went, serve up that ad for a new truck that you were looking at and also see that you looked at for it, whereas our ads were only if you came. Long story short, ad rates went from $18 a thousand to $1. Mm. So it was like, if we could only build a bigger donut factory, uh, yeah, except uh, there's going to be another donut factory where they're going to be able to deliver them to your house and do it differently and all the rest of it. So that's been one, one of the challenges of it. I do think sometimes we should be looking at big tech is, you know, is really strong. And I think, you know, there are some antitrust issues tied to that kind of a thing that I think need to be examined. Like being responsible for what you post rather than allowing any, like it's a dartboard and everyone can throw anything they want on it. Well, think about that. That's one that always got me is, you know, you know, at the Inquirer, we would edit both digital as well as, as, as print, but we would screen for ads and not take them from certain servers and things like this because we wanted it to be appropriate. Facebook's attitude is kind of like, you know, we are so busy. I'm sorry, we can't, I, I, you know, we, we just, it's like if you wouldn't go into a restaurant if they were saying, you know, I, I can't guarantee the quality of the meat, to be honest with you, we're just selling so many hamburgers. You'd say, well, then time out, dude. Because at the Inquirer, we had people screening where ads were coming from before they went in print or on digital. Why shouldn't Facebook? Yeah, you might have to hire 150,000 people, but it's not enough to say, I'm so busy, or now to say, we don't want to infringe speech. That's doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I think that's a great example. And, and I always tell people, just imagine if Channel 6 accidentally broadcasted that mass murder in New Zealand. They would pull our license. We would be done. Facebook had it up many days after it happened. Yeah, that makes no sense, does it? It makes no sense, does it? And, and for, for them to somehow have a different rule book uh, does not make any, does make, not make any sense. And it doesn't mean that government should censor this versus this kind of story, but you should have some responsibilities and, you know, you should be, you're in an incredibly powerful role. And I think just saying, I'm so busy, I can't edit, begin to edit this stuff because they are adding people, you know, they'll say we've added 10,000 more people to screen, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I, I think as you look at some of these issues, then add in things, you know, the, 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 one of the key concerns I think we have as, as a country and as a world is we need to make sure other democracies are aligned with us. You know, China has four times as many people. So as soon as their per person economy is 26% per of ours, their economy will be bigger.
do the math, okay? So now what we need to do is to make sure that all of the other democracies realize we're in this together. These people are, uh, and many times have been reported, are stealing technology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I'm no uh, China-phobe. Uh, my family, my wife and I have been to China at least four or five times going back 16, 17 years. Uh, I have Chinese friends. Um, but, you know, we seem to not say the right things as it relates to the concentration camps that they have for the Uyghurs or the fact that, I mean, that's, that's effectively what they are. Or, you know, uh, Xi Jinping is, is a very aggressive leader for China. And I read different times where even people around him think he's too aggressive. So it is important for us to not uh, threaten war, but also to, when they say certain things, to say, gee, you promised the British in 1997 you wouldn't do anything with Hong Kong till 2047, but you did it 27 years early. So now why do we believe you here? Sure. Let's go, let's go back r real quickly with the social media thing. And given you're an ad guy, I mean, the Washington Redskins didn't change the name until they got the pressure from, from Nike. And we've seen Verizon and other companies, Unilever, pull their ads from Facebook. Is that what it's going to take to get people within the company to take this problem seriously? Exactly that. It, it's exactly it. You can protest, and that's going to be helpful. And the protest, though, but it's when an advertiser, it's when it hits the pocketbook that somebody there says, oh, my gosh, Unilever. You know, P&G, McDonald's. So are there enough companies out there willing to do this eventually? And, and there are some companies uh, who probably see this as a buying opportunity. Hey, with all these guys going out, the rates just went down and we can buy. Yeah. But for the most part, um, you know, I think, you know, and again, we don't want to necessarily shame Facebook. Facebook is doing a lot of different things, trying to help in terms of the Pointer Institute, which I'm the chair of the foundation. They're, they're, program media wise and, and Google is as well helping, you know, to help kids identify fake news and things like this, which is a real threat. But um, it really does help when people express, and that's the beauty of a democracy too, the ability to kind of express themselves and, but hitting the pocketbook is what really does matter. What kind of boss are you, Brian? Um, I don't, you know, I think people would find me, uh, you know, driven. I think, uh, you know, I like to have fun too and laugh and things like this. I'd like to be, um, you know, I, I, I use the analogy sometimes, um, you know, my competitor, I, I have a, a wonderful competitor who said in the Columbia Journalism Review, you know, Brian's driven, he can see around corners and all the rest of it. I guess I, I, I don't, what it is, is for me, it's, you know, I'm still, when I was a busboy in high school, I, uh, you know, at the Seafarer restaurant on, off of City Line Avenue. 13, 14 years, you got paid $8 a shift. And I found that if I'm there, I could stand and talk to the other busboys or I could kind of go out and get, uh, sir, you need more broccoli? And this, at the end of the night, the waitresses would give us our tips. Then they'd all give me a couple of extra dollars. When I was 16 years old, I was able to buy a brand new Chevy Vega with the extra tip money I got. And it just struck me, you know, it works. If you're going to be here, let's do the best we can. Let's and get the pride too of, uh, out of doing it. So I think people would say that um, you know, it's, it's, it's not, um, I, I don't like, um, to be around people who tell me what, why won't something won't happen. Cause I, and I do, I want to hear those things cause that's important to, you know, but I also want to say, okay, so how do we do it? 
So when those people were saying, you know, oh, we're never going to win the Deloitte Consulting Global Business. Well, six months later, when we did win it, to get off an airport in Paris and see the work that we created in the Bellevue six months before now translated to France, to French in the airport was like, thank you, God. You know what I mean? This is really cool. Let's talk about risk, Brian. I heard a story that when you were in law school, you started your first company by financing it on a credit card. Let's talk about risk. Like, how bold do you need to be to start your own business? Uh, you know, it was, it was um, uh, with my first agency, I did start on, on my credit card and I left, I had, you know, one client and um, I have, I've saved, it's really great. Uh, my son, Brian, he would have turned two in 1984. So I have a his birthday card, you know, it's your second birthday, you picture the one, a little baby on a horse. And on the back of it, I'm at law school at night having like, Okay, state optical, $500. Kennedy Wolfington, I think they're going to be next month with the revenues of, of my clients. Um, so, you know, you have to take risk, but it's foolish to take risk that if it doesn't work out, you're set back for years. I don't believe in those kind of risks. So, you know, the risks I took were, you know, I, I didn't sign a lease. We kind of ran it virtually out of my house and borrowing space from an, from one of my clients for the first six months. You were way ahead of the times with that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How about that? Yeah. Well, the client said to me, you know, if you ever get another client, you can use my offices. But then a key moment for me was in 1989 when I had the opportunity. Um, uh, the, the company I was with was being sold to a, a great uh, firm, but it was a guy named uh, Peter Gummer, who's now Lord Chetlington. Um, it was called Shanwick, and he was just buying up companies with a bunch of debt. Long story short, all of us from the CEOs of the Golan offices are in Chicago. He shows us a videotape in 1989 of him being interviewed in the back of his limousine in London. Really feel, it makes you feel good. Anyway, um, so I said, you know, Mr. Gummer, in just three years, sir, you've created the third, fourth largest public relations firm in the world. What do you attribute your success? Tight fiscal controls. Next question. So it was like, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm into this. So I, uh, I had gone to law school. I could pass the bar. Should I practice law or not? Um, I had an opportunity to meet Vernon Hill, who had Commerce Bank. Yeah. I called my boss up and I said, uh, Al Golan, who started his business by calling on Ray Kroc when he had two restaurants and took McDonald's around the world. So anyway, I said, Al, I'll stay six days or six months, but I'm not as into this. You're into it. I'm not like, so, you know, so I stayed a couple of months and then went off and sat down with Vernon. And there I did take a risk. You know, my net worth was probably $25,000 because we had purchased a home and, and put 10% down, you know, and, um, but uh, I had a business plan and I had clients that were permitted to come with me. And he looked at my business plan and I said, you know, I'm gonna like to borrow $300,000. And he looked at it for about four minutes and said, you're gonna need 350. The low point on cash was 348. I paid it back within 18 months. And then um, that's when I came and they came to me five years later and said, would you like to buy our ad agency, which I bought, which was FCB, Flip grew it. And then they came back and said, you know what, you've done a great job. You've grown it from 60 to 250 people. We'd like you to stay. And I'm like, yeah, what does that mean? Well, we'd like to buy it from you. So it was like, I'm 41. It was just like, thank you, G. I mean, holy cow. So it was, you know, not something that, so I stayed another six years doing that too. So I do believe in risk, but I do think you have to, think about the downside kind of a thing as well. And all these things, that, that's what I've tried to do. I want to also talk to you about pricing with your second public relations company, Tierney Group. There's a story that you announced as the company was forming 
We are going to find out what everyone is charging all our competitors. We're going to charge $15 more. Why would you do that? Because I realized that it, I, you know, I felt, you know, um, uh, I felt that I was really good at what I was doing. And I felt that the people that I had had recruited to work with me, like Jay Devine and Mary Austin and, and Stephanie Miller at the time were really hardworking, super bright, which is why I, you know, took the risk of bringing them on, why I needed to borrow the, the $350,000. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and I realized I'm not trying to sell this as a discount. I don't think that's the way it is. I have a client, a wonderful client uh, who said to me a few years ago, you know, you know, you, you, you've done this and you're doing this. And this is a CEO of a major, major, major company with um, um, international company. And he said, you know, I see you guys write off a lot of time. And I said, he said, you know, McKinsey doesn't write off their time. And you're, when it comes to communications, you should feel proud because it's the reality of it. You're like a McKinsey. So that, you know, so that kind of further my, my thought about how, you know, um, you need to be confident. Like I'm, I'm not trying to be the, the you know, and, and, and working with clients too. And if somebody's budget's more limited, we have a wonderful situation recently. We have a great client who was on a retainer. They had some challenges back in March and April. Uh, they said, you know, we need to cut back. And I said, you know what? You've been a great client. Let's keep going the way we're doing it. Don't worry. You, we'll cut it back. But let's, same amount of service. Last week, they called me up and said, you've been great. We just won this great big thing. We want to make you whole. Now, think of the value of that. Here's a client that didn't have to do that. But that's why I like long-term relationships. Like, I, we don't do RFPs. We compete for business, but we don't go through long 85 pages, meet with the procurement department. That's not, you know... But when I come to the table, I'm going to bring people like Ed Malman, who ran the Pennsylvania Lottery, was my partner in my old agency, and in three years grew it from three to three and a half billion dollars in business. So he really has, myself, I ran a $500 million organization with close to full and part-time employees, 5,000 employees. So you really have, you know, and we have different types of people like that at it. So I think it makes this kind of unique. And we're not trying to do it for everybody. We can't do it for everybody. Um, we want to give great value. So many industries have been turned upside down because of the pandemic and education may be near the top. Brian Tierney was already worried about higher education well before the first case of the coronavirus reached the United States. It involves something that industry analysts predict will happen in the year 2025. Uh, let's talk about education. You went to the University of Pennsylvania, as we mentioned, and I'm concerned about the have not colleges and universities, and Penn has a big endowment, probably can survive this pandemic, but then there are those other schools that might not be able to survive one semester. What do you think about that? It, it's scary as all get out, and particularly for Northeastern uh, United States. So there is this phenomenon called the 2025 cliff that uh, those of us in the higher ed space have been identifying and talking about for the last five or six years. It's demographics. When you get to 2025, there's just not a lot, the, the number of 18 year olds it was gonna shift. So you add that. Um, there's a lot of colleges that were historically built in the Northeastern United States, and there's a lot more people living in other parts of the country too. So that, that's part of the challenge. Um, and uh, you also, just, you know, um, and a lot of colleges have been benefiting from international students, lots of times from China, paying full freight, and that's going to end, you know. So you're going to see, I think, a significant consolidation of colleges and universities over the course of the next two or three years. And that is a fraught emotional decision. 
because you know when you're you know on the board you feel like you've you have this trust that's been given to you um you're a board of directors you're probably an alumnus of that school but you're looking at oh my god the endowment is is is, dimin is minuscule our costs are going up we had you know, a thousand people here. We now have 600 people here. We're looking like next year we might have 400 people here. So I think even the, the state university system, it was really wise to see the, the head of the system say, not every state university can have all of these programs. So maybe these two should combine in engineering and this one combines in this. And that's the kind of one thought of how to, how to do it. Um, I think, you know, colleges have a lot of beautiful real estate sometimes. So maybe there's a way to, you know, consolidate with another university, um, monetize some of the assets, the real estate, so that you can build the endowment. I mean, you know, it's, it's hard to do, uh, to, to make those decisions when it's your turn in the seat. But you know, one of the, you, but you also, you know, and you look back and you think, boy, this job must have been easier 20 years ago, 30 years ago when people were rolling in it. But the fact of the matter is, the costs of college have gone up since the 1970s, four times the rates of inflation. You know, when I graduated from Penn, it was $3,700 a year. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's like 74000 now, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the inflation should be, the 3700 should be 22000 yeah. not not 70000 So you do the math, sooner or later this doesn't work out. The other thing, we did a national survey because of our higher ed work. Um, uh, we did a national survey uh, in, in back in March and April. And even back then, two thirds of parents were saying, I need more information before I send my son or daughter off to school because, you know, you know, one, at every level from, I'm afraid I'm gonna lose my job and it would be horrible to have to pull her out of school. Um, I'm, I don't understand what's gonna happen in terms of the risk at the school. All these other things kind of came together. So um, I think, you know, and, and also understandably, a lot of parents are like, Two days a week, mostly remote, and it's full price? Wow, that's kind of, I'm having a hard time with that one too. Um, so I think you will see a significant consolidation and, and, and among schools where they find ways to work together because there's just, frankly, too many colleges and universities. Right now. Yeah, a lot of hard decisions await a lot of people. You, you helped come up with the Philadelphia, the place that loves you back slogan. What is the greatest advertising slogan in the history of the industry, in your opinion? Oh, that's great. Well, I'll talk about that one for a second. So sure. we got our, the place loves you back. One of the things our research showed was that the folks with the worst or who the folks who didn't get how great Philadelphia was were people who live in Philadelphia, partly because they didn't travel much and be like, yeah, yeah, the Art Museum was nice. You know, you go to another city, the Atlanta Museum, where, where I lived, they had one painting. It was like, oh, the, the High Museum of Art. So we had to take outsiders like Oprah Winfrey, who had made a movie here, Ken Burns, the historian, and have them talk about their Philadelphia. And that gave people a sense of like, well, if Oprah Winfrey thinks it's really beautiful to walk down these streets and do this on the drive, I should probably do it. So that gave people a reason to kind of, to to uh, to, uh, to to uh, to to hope. So that that was a fun one to be involved with. The place that loves you back. Best advertising campaign everywhere. Um, I'd have to think some thought. I mean, there's some that I you know you you deserve a break today. Certainly is one that uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but you can tell where I like to eat. You know. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. But uh, uh, you know, there's been so many. You know. Uh, you know. Uh, uh, the, you know, for 
uh, Exelon, we had, you know, campaign, uh, no doubt about it, you know, kind of a thing, you know, Pico Energy, what was when, uh, when um, uh, one of the fun things that we got involved with, there was a time when Enron wanted to buy Pico back in about the 90s, and there was a threat of that. And uh, we hired, uh, you know, uh, uh, we hired, we wanted to talk about stability, this and that. So we hired the guy who had done the Joey Zuzu ads, who was the professional liar from, you know, and we had him with a cowboy hat on. Hi, I am the out-of-state CEO of a major utility, and we're going to do great things together, you know. And it was Pico Energy, no doubt about it. You know, trust us in terms of, of things. Um, th that, that's an important point, some of those kinds of things. And then uh, I, I think the whole James Earl Jones campaign for Verizon and Bell Atlantic and then the Verizon was one we're particularly proud of just because what he represented. And James Earl Jones, I had the opportunity to spend um, one time five or six hours with him in a car. He, picture your best image of who, who James Earl Jones would be as a person. That's exactly what he is. He was just the most amazing, amazing human being. And to be with him, uh, he spoke with a stutter. So, you know, he, he you know, that there was often kind of spontaneous things were a challenge for him. Um, but he was just, I've, I've really been, been, been very fortunate. And then chairing for the first few years for Mayor Rendell, the Marion Anderson Award and Gregory Peck and Harry Belafonte and some of those people that we got and having uh, Bono come over to the Inquirer when uh, he won the Liberty Medal. That was a great example. of yeah, but it was also, it was one, here's one, he's coming in, I go to one of the folks involved with it, love to have Bono come by the inquiry. He's not going to do that, what are you, crazy? <laughs> so got a letter to him saying that really admired specifically his work in what he had done in Africa, here, this and that, wanted to put together a special section that we would distribute to every high school in the, in the uh, tri-state area uh, about his work and uh, wanted to invite him over. All of a sudden, I get a call, how'd you do that? What? He wants to come by. He spent two and a half hours, came in, sang opera in the lobby, toured the newsroom, but he appreciated it. And I have a letter, I have a photo of that. I think it's up on our website too as well. And a photo that, and a letter that he wrote to me afterward. So again, everybody is a human being. And if you can get to them in a sincere way and say, you're really interested in this, I sincerely admire it. How do we help you do that? That's how you, you know, David Ogilvy of Ogilvy and Mather, the quote goes back, and I, I, it could be apocryphal. I've heard it many times, though. If you want a client, first make a friend. First do that. Don't, you know, and so, you know, that, that's, that's an example of kind of, and I'd go back to that, you know, everything is possible. You know, don't sell yourself short. Uh, like I tell young college kids, you know, don't stand a lot of time. Make sure there's water in the pool, but get in the pool. Like <laughs> a series of three to five years swinging vines. You know, make sure that you're meeting other people when you go to an event. Don't just talk to the people you know. Go up to new people and say hi. You know, I'm so and so, and tell me about yourself. And just honestly, you sincerely build relationships. And then when people ask you for something, deliver. And that's where the intensity I think comes from sometimes because you really have to deliver. I want to end on this. Uh, Again, I love your positivity and your outlook on things, no matter how difficult things may seem. I feel like a lot of times, personally, I'm looking forward. I'm like, oh, well, like next year, it'll be this and that, it'll be better. And for someone who I suspect really lives in the moment, do you find yourself doing more and more of that like 2021 and 2022? Like, are you looking more forward these days or not? I do, and uh, you know, 
uh, uh, one quick about the optimism. Um, one of my, uh, and we became friends, but one, when I was at the paper, one of the uh, union leaders who said that, uh, that this person said, sick of Brian's cheerful prattling. So I had a sign made for my desk, a wooden sign with a brass plaque. It said, Chief Cheerful Prattler. So when <laughs> she came into my office, it was on the front of the desk there. So, But, you know, and partly you want to, you know, have, have an optimistic view, not, not ridiculously, you know, but fact-based, but try to find kind of the, the best of it. I always go through an exercise of, you know, here's the problems for our clients too as well. Here are the challenges, here are the problems, you know, but the boat has to leave the dock. So how do we do it? Let's figure it out. And part of that is going through a process of what are the challenges we have to face now? Let's model out, God forbid, something bad next year or the following year. Where would we be? At the same time, uh, which goes into like, don't make those bet the, the ranch kind of bets in terms of risk and things like this to be mindful of it. Um, but, uh, you know, and so have a long term, like, so, you know, I, 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 we're developing now two, three years down the road how, how this could be. Um, at the same time, thinking through, uh, let's be ready to execute kind of quickly moving about it. And in the end, I, you know, my mom's advice was always, you know, oh, Brian, four A's, that's so wonderful. Half hour later, what about that B? My father, on the other hand, was, don't get yourself all shook up, Brian. You're working hard. Do the best you can. It'll work out. It does. Don't get yourself all shook up. And I try to remember dad's advice, too, as well. Yeah, I always say you're never as good as you think you are and you're never as bad as you think you are. And I think that the environment we're in, it's, that probably applies as well. Yeah, and, and accepting that in this environment, issues of mental health and stress, don't feel guilty about it. That's really, really normal. And part of it is, is, is an acceptance of that. Because sometimes you can feel like, I'm feeling so fractures, I'm telling, oh my God, I'm feeling bad. You know, totally cool, totally normal. Now, let's, these are things that we can't change. Let's talk about one or two things that we can change. Maybe it's in our own life. It's, you know what, I'm going to, you know, I'm finally going to spend 15 minutes working out today and I'm not going to buy this or that because, you know, I don't really need it. And uh, the stuff we bought yesterday, let's just have that for dinner tonight. So, I mean, that's one level of kind of, you know, I'm trying to control costs. Okay. It, it, and I've advised some of the young people we've talked about those kind of things. Um, at the other point, it's, you know, uh, just accept that this is this is a time of you know and remember you know jim tierney's uh, advice which is don't get yourself all shook up it'll all work out as long as not because not if you're lazy his mom used to say if you're going to be lazy you should put a millstone around your neck and throw yourself off a bridge when you're five years old that's quite a vivid image of <laughs> that's pretty stark. My, my mom was italian my father was irish so there you go that's the combo it made for an interesting household. So, The ad man himself, Brian Tierney, thanks for joining us on the True Philadelphia podcast. Matt, really enjoyed it. Hope, um, hope others do as well. And I look forward to bringing you back in an inside story. I don't know when that's going to be, but I'm looking forward to that day. I'll wrap myself all in plastic. <laughs> we'll have an unwrapping right there on the, on the set. Thanks for watching this edition of the True Philadelphia podcast. Many of our previous episodes are on YouTube, and you can listen to all of them on Apple and Google Podcasts. And while you're at it, do me a solid, subscribe. You'll be the first to know when a new episode pops up. I'm Matt O'Donnell, stay true, I'm out.